So uh, Jesus, right now we come to you as the one we love. Uh, God, we don't just long for your kingdom. We long for the king. We want to be disciples, followers, apprentices of you, Jesus, in this new landscape that we find ourselves in. Uh, we don't want to be people that are just simply uh, victims of uh, pestilence. And God, we know that pestilence has been always around the church uh, throughout all history and even predating the church. Uh, God, we want to be people that are deeply devoted to you, empowered by your Holy Spirit, and those that can go throughout the sum total of our lives saying, into your hands, Father, we commit our spirits, our lives, our souls, our flesh, our body, to the work that you have for us. So right now, God, we ask that you would speak to our hearts and give us wisdom um, that we can uh, live off of. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, Luke chapter 23. Um, I'm going to read um, just a little passage right there. Um, there's a more lengthier passage and then a psalm that we'll kind of come back to in just a moment. Um, so if you want, you, you can also open up to Psalm 31. We'll look at that in just a moment. Um, but Luke chapter 23, verse 46 is just this little segment right here. It says, when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he gave up the ghost or gave up his spirit. Um, we've been in a series now throughout the season called Lent, um, which is a season leading up to Easter, which, by the way, next week is Easter. It doesn't really feel like Easter, um, but we'll be doing something similar like this next week as well. Um, but as we get into the season, this final Easter week, um, we will also have a time on Friday um, of just meditating, considering who Jesus is and what has happened on Good Friday. Um, but we've been looking at a series of teachings or words or phrases that Jesus has communicated from the cross, the final hours uh, prior to his death and ultimately burial and then resurrection that we will be celebrating next Sunday. Um, this is the final word that Jesus speaks from the cross. Um, it's actually only recorded by one gospel writer, uh, Luke. Um, the rest of them kind of make mention to the fact that Jesus cried or spoke out loud, which is kind of significant um, because when you are dying on a cross in the form of Roman crucifixion, the way that people typically die is actually by asphyxiation, meaning they cannot breathe. And so in other, in other words, for Jesus to be able to have cried, as the text tells us, that would have taken an insurmountable degree of energy and strength in order to actually have done that. So he cries out with this loud voice, and this is what he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. So what I want to really do is just look at two specific things here today in this passage. Um, and then I will circle back and with some final thoughts. But before I do, one of the things I was, as I was thinking about being prepared for this is really the subject of trust. Um, trust. Um, I think for the most part, Californians, Americans in general, and maybe even the West in a bigger, broader sense, um, perhaps even the world as well, but you know, I live in California, I'm localized to California. Um, I think for the most part, by and large, we as Californians, we as people that live in America are deeply untrusting people. We have gone through a series of incredible letdowns and flatlining with, of, with regard to trust um, for major institutions, whether it be the church, whether it be, the multi, whether it be uh, multimedia, whether it be government, um, any form of great 
large or uh, notable institution, uh, they've let us down as human beings. And as a result, we've become extremely untrusting of them. And uh, as human beings, uh, we have just simply found ourselves becoming extremely cynical as human beings. And so therefore, um, I think when trust goes down, what ends up happening is we create kind of these little cycles for ourselves. Uh, we need something to create some degree of comfort and security for us. So what we end up doing is we become hypervigilant on trying to create worlds for ourselves that protect us, meaning we long for, we become security junkies. We need security to live. And when we find ourselves in the midst of insecurity because of an institution that has failed us, um, we find ourselves uh, in, in the midst or in the throes of unrest. So that being said, as being a community of people that are deeply untrusting, it's one of the reasons why I think for the most part Christianity um, has had a slow run or has been challenged even in more recent years is because the very heart, the very core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is it means we trust. We trust God. We trust God as Father. And again, for many, even in the West, the institution of a family has been broken down or eroded or a father, father figure, one who is supposed to be kind of the embodiment of love and protectiveness has actually uh, used his hands rather than being a means of protection, uh, has used his hands to be abusive um, physically, sexually, um, all sorts of other means and ways. And so that has created this massive um, discrepancy between um, uh trusting God, who is this depiction of a perfect father, and getting the name of God, fatherhood, image of God, confused with even earthly figures like failed earthly fathers. But that being said, Christianity at the very core, as I mentioned, is already focused upon what it means to follow and to trust uh, God as our father. So that being said, as we begin to read passages like this, we're struck by the fact that Jesus himself deeply trusted his father. So what I want to do real quick is I want to just look at a couple different things in this passage, and we'll bring it to some close. Um, I really want to focus on two elements. Number one is the language that Jesus used to express his grief. So up until this point, Jesus has been saying these like little short snippets, these little phrases of grief, of anguish, prayers for his, um, his enemies. As he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But nonetheless, most of the times and most of the things that Jesus speaks from the cross have some hint or direct quote to Old Testament passages. And then secondly, we'll take a look at the love of, that Jesus expressed to God by entrusting himself to him. So those two main elements. Number one, the language that Jesus used. Number two, the love that Jesus expresses to the Father. So number one, let's take a look at real quickly the language that Jesus used to express his grief and then ultimately confidence in God. So, for example, um, most scholars agree that what Jesus is actually doing is, is a direct quote from Psalm 31. And I just want to read that little segment right there because, again, for those that would have been familiar with the Old Testament language or the Old Testament um, um, hymn book, which is called the Psalms, um, they wouldn't have called it the Old Testament, of course. They would have just called it their Bible. Um, they would have heard Jesus say this, and they would have immediately recognized this is a direct quotation from the Psalm. So Psalm 31, I'll just read verse 1 on down to verse 5, and verse 5 is the one that Jesus is directly quoting. But just listen to the psalmist as he says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame, and in your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock and a refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your namesake, you lead me and you guide me. 
and you take me out of the net that they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, the faithful God. And then he goes on in one of the other phrases that he describes is that I, I believe, I trust in your steadfast, unfailing love is the way that the psalmist is describing this. Um, most people believe that this is actually written by uh, David uh, during a time where he's actually fleeing for his life and he's finding himself in the midst of chaos, in the midst of chaos. And in the midst of this chaotic um, landscape that David finds himself, he's entrusting himself entirely to God. Um, this is an interesting type of literature that we see oftentimes coming back over and over again throughout the Psalms. Um, throughout the Psalms, there are many different genre of Psalms that have been written. One of the main and major forms of genre that the Psalms are actually written in is a form of language that's typically known as lament. Um, lament is a type of uh, interaction with God that I think for the most part, many of us in the West are just unfamiliar with. And because we're unfamiliar with it, uh, we kind of lean into other forms of parodies of it and Oftentimes, they just kind of lead us down to a path of just either full despair or hyper-optimism. And so, as I was thinking about this, I thought this would be important to just identify that when Jesus was praying, when Jesus was addressing his Father, he was tapping into all of this rich language and literature that the Psalms and other Old Testament writings would have given him. That when Jesus was in these moments of incredible chaos and despair, he was actually using God's word as a means of leveraging his soul from the pit of despair into deep confidence, confidence and trust in the Father. And I would suggest for many of us that this is what we need more than anything else in our lives than ever. And if you're, you know, as a follower of Jesus, my, my encouragement to you, as we've been trying to say over the past several weeks, is, you know, don't, don't waste your quarantine. Don't waste this time that we have because this, I think, is a testing ground for us of pressing in to Jesus in greater depths or um, drifting into greater forms of secularism, distrust in God, um, other forms of just cultural like numbing effects that we have available to us um, in, in high demand, right? But at wholesale value, um, meaning they might help us to some degree for a limited period of time. And then at some point, um, the, the stupor or the, uh, the, uh, the effects wear off and we find ourselves having to face reality all over again. What I would love to encourage you to consider and think about and um, to really uh, equip yourself with is the language of lament. So I'll give you an example before I jump into some other elements of this. So for example, in the book of, there's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations, right? The book of Lamentations is written by a guy by the name of Jeremiah. So just to cast a little bit of a backstory, Jeremiah was a prophet of God. He was a young guy that basically watched um, as the Babylonian Empire comes in and completely decimates his entire city. Um, I had just had the great privilege with my wife as a handful of, of about 30 of us. We had gone to Israel just about two weeks prior to lockdown, right? Um, and to walk the city, to be a part of that. Um, there's a time when Jeremiah, who had lived during a season where uh, Israel had incredible prosperity, but all of that was gone. 
all of that in a moment was taken away. And so here's Jeremiah in the picture of Lamentations, sitting in a cave overlooking the city that has been completely destroyed. He's watching little fires smolder. He's looking at what the remnants of this great vast temple where at, you know, maybe three weeks prior, Jeremiah would go and offer these sacrifices to the Lord and go pray before the Lord. And now all he's looking at are nothing more than smoldering ruins, ruins, and he's, he's, he's processing this. He realizes the landscape that I once used to experience in terms of God's pleasure and protectiveness and protection and goodness is now gone. And it may never in my lifetime return back to any degree of quote-unquote normalcy. What do you do when that happens? I'm not saying, you know, I don't, I don't know what the outcome of any of this is. I mean, my hope with every other American's hope is that we would get back to some degree of normalcy. The question obviously is, is what is normal? Is, is normal, you know, January 10th, you know, February 2nd? You know, I mean, is normal three weeks, four weeks, five weeks before all of this? What, what, is, what is normal that we would look at? I think for most of us, uh, normal would be, you know, getting back into this typical rhythm where at, you know, 7.30 a.m., you go drop your kid off at school, and after you drop your kid off, you stop off at Scout Coffee. You get yourself a nice little $4 latte. After that, you go to your little yoga class, and when you're done with yoga, you go home, and you drink your green smoothie, and then you go pick up your kid from school, and then you feed them dinner, and then you repeat the next day over and over. Normalcy. I don't know if it's going to return back to any degree of normalcy that we have identified. And that's frightening for many people. It's absolutely frightening. It's terrifying, especially for small businesses on the Central Coast. I'm not trying in any way incite any degree of fear, but I'm just trying to um, levelize how oftentimes what we have been confronted with right now more than anything is how vulnerable we are as human beings. We're going about it every day of our life in some degree of normalcy. And in a moment, everything has been turned upside down on its head. Now what? For the past four weeks, this has been our normal. It's crazy. But the fact of the matter is, like with Jeremiah several thousand years ago, here he is sitting looking at the landscape of the new normal, smoldering ruins of a once robust, bustling, economically rich and um, um, prosperous nation now leveled to ruins. People walking around looking for food, uh, freaking out as to what their livelihood will look like. How are they going to take care of their kids and their families? This is their new norm. And now Jeremiah's looking at all of this and just trying to make sense of it all. And in the book of Lamentations, what he does is he presses into God. He's wrestling with these things. So one scholar actually write, wrote about this. In fact, you can check it out um, on ntwrite.org. Uh, um, that's the most recent article that was written on there by some guy, I'm not even sure of his name, um, but just great content. And he actually describes the nature of lament. lament. And what, what is lament? And again, like I said, I want to equip you with this idea of how to lament. Because what lament is, is it's, it's not optimism, nor is it pessimism. Optimism oftentimes lead to, leads to this sort of triumphalism. Um, which at some point causes you to become indifferent to pain, which then leads to cheap explanations as to, hey, well, here's what's going on in the world. Here's why everything's happening the way it is, because X, Y, and Z. And you have you know, these people come on 
YouTube and they speak for six hours about how, you know, every Christian has failed to do their duty and whatnot. So these are all cheap attempts to try to identify and to create answers as to what's happening. Lament doesn't do that. Lament recognizes this is the landscape we're living in, and I'm forced with a question. How will I trust God in the midst of this new landscape? And this is what Jeremiah does. This is what Jesus does. Not trying to find answers, dealing with it, and yet trusting God. Um, I think, honestly, and again, I'll, I'll speak more to this in my podcast than I do have time right now. I think the church in America, for very, very long, I mean generations, has leaned towards more of a triumphal mentality, which has caused the American church to become indifferent to the pain of much of the world and the suffering that the world has been in that normal for a long time. Uh, you can look at many of the songs that American Christians have sung. They're, they're triumphal. And again, there's nothing wrong with having a triumphal mentality that Jesus is king and his kingdom is awesome, and it really is. But it leads to a potential idol of triumph that causes us to become indifferent to suffering and pain. And when suffering and pain hits us, we don't know what to do with it. It's one of the many reasons why, and I've heard this narrative so many times, it's just mind-blowing to me. Christians that have followed Jesus into this path of triumphalism, and then, you know, their marriage ends in divorce, or their spouse cheats on them, or their child comes down with some horrific disease, and they, they leave God. I'm done with God. I was expecting to follow God into a path of beauty and victory, and it failed. God failed. That's because an idol is made out of uh, optimism, triumphalism. Um, but nor is it pessimism. I mean, lament is not just sitting around with a gripe session. It's, it's not just like, it's not going to Facebook just constant, like, divulging vents. That's not what it is either. It's not just simply complaining about God. It, it's not the modern form that we've seen over the past several years as well of just deconstructionalization. We're going we're gonna to deconstruct the church because the church is so messed up. It's not that either. So it's, it's not triumphalism, pessimism. It's not pessimism and deconstruction of everything that I'm, I'm mad at. It's something different. And this is what this writer describes lament as. Number one, he says five things. Number one, it's a form of praise, of saying, God, I don't get it. I don't make sense of this. I can't understand this, but you're good. That's praise. Secondly, it's a proof of relationship. Um, you can have a child that is complaining to mom and dad, um, and it's, a lot of times that could be proof of, of relationship. In the article, he describes um, a book written by a guy named Russell Moore. Some of you might know of him, but he wrote a book about adoption. And he was describing this experience when he went into this one hospital in some uh, foreign country. And he noticed that all the kids, all the newborns, weren't crying. And uh, later he was described that the reason why they weren't crying is because they had cried, but nobody responded to their cries. And after some period of time, they just stopped crying because there's no one there going to respond. <laughs> That's heavy. But lament is crying because you know that somewhere in this universe, we have a God that listens and hears. So we cry. I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you. Don't 
be afraid, to lament, to cry out to God. He knows, he hears, he responds. So number one, lament is not only a form of praise. Two, it's a proof of relationship. Three, he describes it as a pathway to intimacy with God, a pathway to intimacy with God. Fourthly, it's a, uh, it's a prayer for God to act. And that's what we see throughout the Psalms that, again, many of them are laments. Um, Lamentations is a prayer. God, do something. Stand up. Rise up. Do something. Step into this mess. Do you understand? That might sound like it's a complaint against God, but it's it's really a, a cry for God who you know instinctively, even though you might not in that moment know experientially, instinctively you know that he's good. It's a prayer for God to act. And then finally, it's a participation in the pain of others. Um, the author writes about this, and I've had the same experience. There's been times I've, I've read the Psalms, and there's many occasions where I can read certain things. I'm like, ah, oh, that doesn't apply to me. <laughs> you know? it's, I don't, uh, I don't, I'm not going through a certain, same circumstance that the psalmist had gone through. But what he was describing is that I may not go through that, but there may be others in my life that I might come in contact with that have actually gone through the same thing. In other words, the Psalms give me language to understand other people's pain. And that creates in me the type of personality that's like Jesus that allows me to feel deeply the pain of other people. We call it either empathy or sympathy. But it allows us to enter into participation with other people's pain. So I want to invite you to think about Jesus's Words on the cross as being lament. Not complaint, not cursing God, not turning atheist, but calling out to God because Jesus had a deep relationship with God, but in the moment he felt this pain. But nonetheless, what we see secondly, not only the language that Jesus used to express his grief and confidence in God, but secondly, we see the love that Jesus expressed to God by entrusting himself to him. And in the words, listen to the text again. He says, then Jesus cried with a loud voice. And he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He uses the language to refer to God as Father. So this is deeply relational, deeply intimate. Jesus trusts his father and calls upon his father to do what only God can do. And this is where I would encourage you as you think about this. Again, this is, this is language of trust. Uh, we live in a day where, again, I think like many of us, we're just asking who can we trust? What news source can we trust? Is there a news source that we can trust? Uh, is there a politician we can trust? Um, is there an institution that we can trust? Again, the world has changed. For how long? I don't know. But if, if anything, what it's done is it's, it's in this moment of suspended animation where it's allowed us to step back a little bit and be like, interesting, what's happening? And when we go forward again, what will that look like? I'm asking that question consistently. And honestly, it's, in some ways, it's, it's disconcerting. But in other ways, it's, it's filled with incredible prophetic possibilities that God will bring forth newness. And I think here's Jesus on the cross, knowing that he's facing the greatest form of torment a human could ever endure. But at the same time, he's entrusting himself to the will of his Father. So I don't know about you or how you're facing this or what types of circumstances you find yourself in the midst of 
all of this? Or what types of uh, distrust type issues that this whole thing has kind of created in you? I wonder if many of the forms of anxiety that we have, fear of death, fear of, you know, contracting the disease, fear of someone else in our life is actually, is actually rooted back to a deeper, more base level cause where we feel this deep sense of needing to be in control. And right now we're not. And that freaks us out. And the gut level response of that is anxiety. My encouragement to you would be to take those anxieties to the one who loves you and who's given himself for you, to the one to whom on the cross takes his own difficulties to the Father and says, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. Let those words be the words that form prayer and passion and longing from your own heart. This is a really unique season that we find ourselves in because for those that have viewed Christianity as really nothing more than an, like an accessory to their life, meaning it was convenient, and, you know, when you've got lots of incredibly great churches in San Luis Obispo and on the Central Coast and beyond, um, it's, it's really easy to just kind of treat it as a convenience. So, in other words, you go when it's available, which means that even the teachings that are there available, you can take or choose or, you know, pick or leave uh, based upon your own tastes. But really, at the end of the day, all it is is just pointing to the fact that we're still in control of our lives, or at least we think we're still in control of our lives. But then what's happening right now in the face of coronavirus is we're realizing for the first time in this entire generation, um, and if you were around back during 9-11, there was a brief window of time. <laughs> many of us, many of those in our church weren't even, even alive during that time. But for many, uh, we remember there's just like this week-long or four or five-day period of time where we're like, oh my gosh, we're not really in control as much as we thought we were. This has literally exacerbated that to a large degree where we're still in the midst of that. No, the answer is you're not in control of your life. Coronavirus has just done nothing but remove any facade that we are leaning upon. It's exposed us. And beneath the exposure, we have this unique opportunity to continue to carry on. Life is normal, which it's not normal, meaning we just live in a level of pretending, or we turn to the one who loves us, who's literally in control of all things who will carry us. I want to finish with a quote, and then we'll go to the table, and I'm done. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon uh, says these words. Just listen to them. They're really powerful. He said, Beloved, if we know how to commit ourselves into the hands of God, what a place it is for us to be in. What a place to be in the hands of God. There are myriads of stars. There's a, the universe itself. God's hands upholds all of it, and they do not fall. If we got into the hands of God, we get into where all things find their rest, their place, and their happiness. We have got into the all-sufficiency of the Creator. Hasten to get there, beloved friends, and live in the hands of God. My encouragement to you, as we go to the table and partake the cup and the bread, that we would be reminded of the love of God, the protective fatherliness of God, and the invitation to truly in this moment to follow Jesus in a way like maybe we've never done before. Um, 
I would even dare say in this new cultural landscape that we found ourselves over the past four weeks, being a Christian, I don't want to say it's hard, but it's become less convenient. You can't just get in your car, cruise to the local coffee shop, get your $5 latte, and then come strolling in, you know, 15 minutes late and check your kids into children's ministry and then waddle into service and just casually be chatting with all your friends and bro-hugging everyone. It's, you, don't, you don't have that anymore. So the question is, what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus now? It's less convenient. The question is, does it matter? I would suggest it matters immensely. Our eternity is hinged by this. We're invited by Jesus to follow his lifestyle, of trusting the Father with the very core of our beings. So I don't know where you're at or how you think about this. And as we partake of communion, what I want to do is I want to invite you, that if you're here listening, watching, observing, uh, before we go to a time of communion, and then um, we, we go off of this um, medium, and then we go into our Zoom room and pray, that if you're watching, you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to maybe trust Jesus with your life. Um, and then what do you do after that? Um, my encouragement to you would be just check out our website, and there's links on there, or let us know in a private message on Facebook or Instagram um, that you would love to talk with someone. We'd be happy to have someone chat with you, connect with you, pray with you, help give you some next steps. Again, um, my podcast that is going to be forthcoming um, in episodes, um, I'm, one of my real big hopes is to really – not only ask that question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in this new landscape, but to really try to provide some tangible examples of what does that look like? To really, what does being a follower of Jesus look like in this new landscape that's been turned upside down on its head? That all the norms that we once held onto are no longer. <laughs> um, my encouragement to you is that it's actually very hopeful that we have a God that is not out of control that loves us. So I want to pray for you if you're not a follower of Jesus or if you're somebody that has kind of played the Christian role or you've accessorized yourself with Christian trinkets over the past several years and you've kind of treated it as more of a convenience. Again, there's no guilt, no shame. It's just kind of been part of the cultural landscape, but we're in a new cultural landscape. Now the invitation for you is to really think about what does it look like for you to truly follow Jesus with a 